Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. EM Cases is part of SREMI, Schwartz-Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute, the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for information and education purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. It's a true honor to have on the show Dr. Ben McKenzie, an emergency physician from Australia, who has taken a special interest in the sickest of the sick patients with anaphylaxis or asthma, the ones who are sick enough to require assisted ventilation or who are unconscious, and those who are in the midst of a respiratory or vasodilatory arrest. Dr. McKenzie, thank you so much for joining us. I know this has been a long road for you and a difficult one. Could you just tell us a little bit about what made you interested in the sickest patients with anaphylaxis or asthma for those listeners who haven't heard your story yet? Hi, Anton. Thanks so much for having me and hello to everyone. It's two years just last weekend since my 15-year-old boy, Max, died from anaphylaxis and he didn't need to die from anaphylaxis. We knew that he was allergic to walnuts and he accidentally ate some at his grandma's house and he he did everything right. He used his EpiPen. His mum was already just around the corner to about to pick him up and the ambulance was called promptly but then after half an hour with the, the paramedics when the hospital was 10 minutes down the road, um, he had a respiratory arrest and and then he arrived in effectively respiratory arrest with a normal blood pressure in the ER, in the ED, and it took 23 minutes to intubate him and during that time he suffered a severe hypoxic brain injury and he died 13 days later as a consequence of brainstem instability. And I had to participate in his resuscitation when I got there because things weren't happening as they should. And I guess, you know, part of this is really making sure that people understand what the physiological issues are so that my family has to go through what we've been going through over the last two years. And so, you know, as healthcare professionals, we think that it won't happen to us, but it, but it can, as you know. and all of Max's friends who we spent last weekend with, they were they're incredible boys. They're, you know, they were 14 and 15 years old when they were lowering Max's coffin into the ground. And it's just not something that should happen. Our aim should be zero deaths from asthma and anaphylaxis in young people. And I guess that's what I'm here for. Wow. I, you know, I, I can't even begin to imagine what you and your family have, have gone through. And I, I hugely admire your, your courage and your wherewithal to be able to be on this podcast and to do all the great work that you've done with your AMAX4 algorithm, which we'll talk about soon. So thank you again for, for being on, on EM Cases. Yeah. Oh, no, thank you. Thanks for giving the opportunity because it, it, you know, we're just really trying to get people to be their best. So hopefully we can help each other do that. 
Excellent. So with that in mind, you know, we've all seen patients suffering from anaphylaxis and severe asthma, but few of us have seen these patients progress to arrest. And these patients may be arresting from hypoxia. It might be a respiratory arrest, like in Max's case, or from vasodilatory shock or, or from both, I suppose. The trick here is trying to predict which patients will get that sick. Are, are there any clinical clues that can help predict which patients might be heading towards arrest so that we know that we need to act fast and aggressively now? Yeah, sure. There, there is. So I'm, I'm a PhD candidate now, and uh, you know my PhD topic is anaphylaxis resuscitation. And acute systemic allergy is a spectrum, right? So you eat a peanut or get exposed to a drug that you're allergic to, and you might get mild symptoms, which are just you know intense itchiness or some more of oropharyngeal symptoms. And you get those acutely, but it might progress to complete cardiorespiratory arrest. And the, the things that make the more severe end of the spectrum transpire is what allergists call cofactors. And so we know that things like the dose of allergen, the sensitivity of the individual, and we know that asthma is a massive cofactor, and even more so if you have a concurrent upper respiratory tract infection at the time. We know that if you're old and you've got cardiovascular problems and you're on medications that mean that it's harder for you to survive the physiological insult of anaphylaxis, that uh, you're more likely to die. But young people who have you know, robust physiology, if we're aware that things can progress rapidly and, and it, it is difficult to predict. There's there's no absolute uh, way of predicting who's going to get to that arrest spectrum, but we should be able to anticipate it and, and, and stop people getting injured once they get to us. So they're, the I guess, the cofactors. And interestingly, all allergens aren't created the same. So food allergens, be, probably because everyone with a food allergy also has asthma or atopia and it really is any history of asthma that's that's a risk and uh, there's been some great studies or you know case series actually that describe essentially a hundred percent of young people with food allergy die from bronchospasm component with uh with with or without airway involvement and that's probably because asthma is so prevalent in in that group in insect bites and venom exposure, the rate of asthma is much less, and there's absolutely a cardiovascular collapse predominance in, in that group of patients. So if you're stung by a bee, then it's most likely going to be mostly vascular, but if you have asthma, it's going to be an element of bronchospasm, where all the data comes from, from theatre and, and perioperative medicine. And in that situation, we know that 50% of anaphylaxis cases involve bronchospasm. So while vascular collapse is, is very prominent when you get a IV allergen intravenously, the, um, bronchospasm is still is still 50%. And in 20% of people, it's actually the presenting feature of anaphylaxis in theatre. So if you've got a history of asthma or it's a young person with food allergy, you should presume that it's a bronchospastic arrest. And you should also presume that the airway may be edematous. And I, I think that's uh, there's some pretty good numbers or case series to support that. 
Okay, so the combination of a child with a history of asthma and a food allergy, if they come in sick and you suspect anaphylaxis, you know this is the patient that you really want to worry about that could be heading towards an arrest. Yeah. And interestingly, that you know, we know that anaphylaxis has been miscategorized as asthma previously. I think there's increasing awareness that anaphylaxis can present with bronchospasm alone, and that's been recognized in the World Allergy Organization's new definition where it can where it's either airway or hypertension or bronchospasm with exposure to a possible allergen, all of that. Um, without any other symptoms, uh, fits the, the anaphylaxis definition. So, yeah, that you, you've hit the nail on the head. That's right. All right. So, really, we're talking about a combination of bronchospasm, and there's also the airway asphyxia part. What, what's happening there with the pathophysiology? You had touched on that there's, you know, possible upper airway edema with anaphylaxis. Um, so, it, it's kind of this trifecta of possible vasodilatory shock, airway asphyxia, and bronchospasm. So could you just comment a bit on, you know, how we should be thinking about this when the patient actually comes in really sick? Yeah, sure. So there's mast cells in lots of places in the body. They're the predominant reservoir of inflammatory mediators, and there's lots of inflammatory mediators that you can measure. We know that Asthmatics or people who present with bronchospasm need lower levels of those inflammatory mediators when you measure them to create bronchospasm enough to cause hypoxia. But in the airway, there's there's angioedema that occurs, and that can be in the oropharynx, so tongue and soft palate, or it can be laryngeal. So even if you get the laryngoscope, easily pass the oropharynx because the tongue's not too bad and the, there's not too much swelling that you can see on the way down. The larynx may, in itself may be edematous and you still might see the cords, but it's going to be pretty tight like creeper. You know, it's unusual to intubate creep, but I've certainly done a couple in my time and you see the cords, but it's hard to get the tube in. You need to pick a tube that's a size lower or, or even two sizes smaller and that's the same case in anaphylaxis. And so you just need to be prepared for that. And that kind of becomes important later when we're talking about the timeframes required to avoid hypoxic brain damage. So if you're having trouble, it might not be because you're a bad intubator. It might be because you're a good intubator, but it's really, it's actually a, a tough situation. And that's worth thinking about beforehand. Yeah, great point. So we really need to be thinking again, in terms of bronchospasm, upper airway edema, and vasodilatory shock all at the same time, and to expect that when you look in, you might be seeing just a massive pink tissue and really nowhere to go, or you might see somewhere to go, but you try and go and you you get stopped. So we'll talk a little bit more in a bit about specific airway management, but I want to first talk about adrenaline, or in North America, we, we call it epinephrine, but we'll call it adrenaline for now. No, we can call it epinephrine. I'm, I'm, okay. I'm, yeah, I'm here for, for you guys, for sure. Thank you. So let's talk about the dose, route, and timing of epinephrine then. You know, we all know that epinephrine is the first-line medication for anaphylaxis and that we don't want to be messing around initially 
with antihistamines and, and steroids, that it's really all about epinephrine. And, you know, we know that the starting dose is typically in the adult of 0.5 milligrams intramuscularly in the thigh, and then we repeat it. And that's, that's what we're doing most of the time for anaphylaxis. But with these really, really sick patients, we need to start thinking outside of that box of just IM 0.5 milligrams. Could you talk to us a bit about the dose, the route, and the timing of, of epinephrine in these really sick patients? Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, look, the first thing to say is these sick patients are rare. So, you, you know, 90% of the time, zero or one dose of epi in the doses you've just described is all you need. And because some anaphylaxis gets better by itself before you, they even get to hospital. And because it gets better after one dose, it's kind of easy to get lulled into this false sense of security that you think, oh, well, all, all, all those anaphylaxis gets better. I just need a, a dose of epi and it'll be fine. 10% get two doses and 3% need some IV. Now, the thing is, when you have a young person who's dying in front of you, people need to know that it takes five to eight minutes to get a peak dose of adrenaline from your intramuscular dose. So if you think that things are going fine and you've got eight minutes to wait, that's great. But if your patient is an extremist, then that's too long. They need epi now, and that means that you need to give an IV dose where the effect is instant. We're talking about patients who are grossly hypoxic, grossly hypotensive, where their cognitive state is starting to deteriorate because they're either hypoxic or not perfusing their brain and they need help now. A key point is that if your patient is still deteriorating despite two doses of IM adrenaline, as in their symptoms haven't turned the corner because, you know, that's our end point is we're looking for this patient who starts to get better and turns the corner. But if that's not happening after two doses of IM adrenaline, then you need to, your antenna needs to be up and you need to be prepared for the whole arrest situation. And that's when you reach for your IV adrenaline. That's when you start getting things ready. And if things turn the corner and while you're doing that, that's great. Two doses of IM adrenaline and things are getting worse or they just get worse in a hurry and the trajectory is downwards. That, that, that's when you need to, to, to really step in and, and go for the IV epi. That's a brilliant background on the dosing of, of epinephrine. I just want to talk a little bit more specifically about if you need to go for IV epinephrine, are you using push dose epinephrine, you know, nine milliliters of normal saline with one milliliter of crash cart epinephrine mixed in a syringe and you just uh, give, you know, a milliliter at a time? Are you just giving a crash cart dose of epinephrine? Are you doing something different? What's kind of the easiest, most efficient way to give IV epinephrine in these cases? Yeah, okay. So I, I think you don't want to give the full cardiac arrest dose if they're not in cardiac arrest. I think if they're in respiratory arrest and you, and you are in an emergency, then the dose is one microgram per kilogram. And where that dose comes from is pediatric resuscitation guidelines in Australia and the UK so in a 50 kilogram child, that's 50 micrograms and that's easy. That's half a mil of the, the 10 mil solution, which you just mentioned. 
Now, if they're awake and talking to you, you may not want to give that full one microgram per kilo as a push dose. You might want to give that over a few minutes or five minutes or even in in, in, in little increments. So give 10 or 20 micrograms at a time. But if you if you're in a panic and your patient's an extremist and you think they're dying, then the, the answer is one microgram per kilogram, and that's a push dose intravenously. Okay. So from a practical perspective, if you get a patch in that there's a patient coming in anaphylaxis who's sick, then you might want to really consider preparing your push dose epinephrine in advance. And then it's relatively easy because then you just know you've got it in advance and you, you give your one microgram per kilogram. Um, but again, as you say, sometimes this is a panic situation. If you are in a so-called panicked situation and you just need to give something right now and you don't have time to mix up push dose because it does take a bit of time to mix it up. What's your recommendation? Yep. So your crash cart epi is one milligram in 10 mils. Is that right? Yeah. So yeah, half a mil. Half a mil or one mil, you just give that out of that crash dose. If you look at my website, on the AMAX4 website, then I've got the video of of how to easily draw up dilutions for, for both big and small people. But if you're in a panic, half a mil or one mil of the crash cart dose is, is the way to go. Okay, great. So with IV epi, if you need a go-to number and a go-to dose because things are overwhelming, it's one microgram per kilogram, and that can be given every 30 seconds to 10 minutes. So you get a response then you can wait and you feel like you need some more at five minutes, you give it at five minutes. But the dose is one microgram per kilogram every 30 seconds to 10 minutes. That's a fascinating fact that intramuscular epinephrine peaks at five to eight minutes because hypoxic brain injury ensues in four minutes. So according to that physiology and timing, intramuscular epinephrine is not going to prevent hypoxic brain injury in these patients. And so that's one of the reasons you want to go straight to intravenous epinephrine. It's interesting with I'm epinephrine that there's a there's one peak at five minutes. And then interestingly, in all the EpiPen studies in healthy subjects, there's a second peak at, at, at 40 minutes. Um, and it's fascinating. And we're not really sure why that occurs. And maybe it's because there's a, just a secondary reabsorption from the intramuscular dose. But the pharmacokinetics are not as predictable as we think. So there's this lull at 20 minutes and then a lull at uh, 60 minutes, uh, where the times where you might get these sort of waning symptoms or recurrence of symptoms when your epi levels are falling. Yeah, yeah it's really interesting. If your heart stops because of hypoxia and you have that bradycardic phenomenon where, you, where you're hypoxic and your heart slows down and then becomes asystolic, then your, your brain's already hypoxic when your cardiovascular system stops. So hypoxic brain injury actually happens much quicker in contrast to VF where your SATs are 100% when your cardiovascular system stops. And with CPR, your SATs might sit there for some minutes. So I think understanding that hypoxic cardiac arrests, that the time uh, of four minutes of brain injury is generous, <laughs> it's, it's probably shorter because you're already hypoxic at the time that your heart stops and that circulation ceases. 
So that underlines the importance of securing the airway and providing oxygenation and ventilation as soon as possible for these patients. So let's move on to airway management. I've been in situations where I see really bad asthmatics who seem to be tiring, and my usual approach is to actually try and avoid intubation whenever possible, because I was taught that there's this myriad of problems when you intubate a severe asthmatic, that you know you take away their drive to breathe, and then you'll cause an arrest, and there's airway pressures that are stacking up, and you're causing pneumothoraces and all these other problems. And in my experience, when I see a severe asthmatic starting to tire, I try everything I can to avoid intubation and, you know, knock on wood, that's been a pretty successful way of dealing with at least adult patients with severe asthma. Now, on the other hand, some of these patients, they just need to be intubated to prevent death. In your mind, what are the indications for endotracheal intubation in the severe asthmatic or anaphylactic patient? Yeah, so it's easiest to work backwards. So cardiac arrest, that's easy. They get intubated. Respiratory arrest, where you are needing to help with a mask and a bag that you feel like you need to help them with their breathing and they're unconscious. That's a respiratory arrest. That's what it looks like. That's easy. They need intubating right there and then within the four minutes. If your patient's awake, then you're absolutely right. We all try and avoid intubation because there's no rush. But what you want to do is not be in a situation where someone decompensates in an uncontrolled way. So that dogma about avoiding intubation in asthmatics is kind of old. It's from days when people used to give big tidal volumes, not understand about avoiding breast stacking and ensuring there's expiratory flow returns to baseline and permissive hypercapnia. We've got so good at these ventilated techniques that it's actually nothing to be scared of in terms of intubating a sick asthma whose CO2 is climbing despite some NIV. You know, in Australia, we would happily do NIV now for asthmatic patients. And if you're having a controlled deterioration, then you make the decision because the CO2 is climbing or the conscious state is dropping. And, and you make the decision to intubate before you get to respiratory arrest or cardiac arrest. But as soon as they're unconscious and you're needing to provide bag mask support, it is now flipped in that the more seconds you delay, the more harm you're causing. So you're causing harm by not acting. And, and it's really important concept to understand. Beautifully explained. Thank you very much. Excellent. Yeah, that's a, a really great point. It really has changed quite a bit recently in terms of our uh, approach and our threshold for intubating severe asthmatics. I understand that in Max's case, you performed a cricothyrotomy. Uh, I can't even imagine that moment. <clears throat> Could you comment on sort of when that decision should be made and what perhaps some of the, the pitfalls are in deciding I mean, you know, the, the classic teaching is the biggest pitfall in performing a cricothyrotomy is not performing it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So could, could you just uh, comment a little bit of, about that in this context of severe anaphylaxis and asthma? The first point just to make is that bag mask ventilation or laryngeal masks are not appropriate in this situation because the peak inspiratory pressures that are required to ventilate an asthma are... 100 
120, like that, that the massive pressures. Now, those peak pressures are okay. That that's not the thing that causes a pneumothorax when when you're delivering them, but that the path of least resistance becomes the esophagus or or just failure with air leaking out around the mask. So we need an endotracheal tube with an inf- working cuff that is required to generate the pressures we need to achieve this critical asthma ventilation with, with high pressures. And so that's the starting point. Now, if you have that in your head, along with the fact that hypoxic brain injury happens in four minutes, then all of a sudden we've got these conditions that mean that you really have one shot at oral direct or video laryngoscopy. And if you fail, it may be because it's actually difficult because there's some airway edema. It may be difficult for other reasons, other baseline reasons, but it's okay to say that was tough and to not persist because that's how things go wrong because you have another go and another go and Elaine Bromley is a good case, uh, just a routine operation from the UK some years ago and now Max, another case where I was the sixth person to, to manage Max's airway and there were three attempts at laryngoscopy over 10 minutes during which time Max was asystolic. And, of course, once he had a tube in, his neck, you know, once he actually got some oxygen with some high pressures, his heartbeat came back instantly. Like it was within one cycle of, of CPR that his heartbeat came back. And so I guess it's just such a graphic illustration of how critical endotracheal intubation is in this scenario because the bag mask failed but the endotracheal tube worked and he was able to be oxygenated like I did it myself he went from asystole to blood pressure of 160 in a couple of minutes and and that's what oxygen does it's it's really really helpful for for the body to survive so so where this gets us is just one look you have a crashing asthma or anaphylaxis patient you're not sure whether it's anaphylaxis or asthma unless they've been there for the whole time or if they suddenly arrive on your doorstep you've got one shot and that needs to be the best shot with the best person in the room not the best person in the hospital the best person who's right there and if that doesn't work out, then there's no discussion. There's no debate. I'm giving you complete permission anywhere in the world. I'll, I'll back you up that you need to go for front of neck access. And that needs to happen within the four minutes. It's the only way that you can save these, these young people's lives. So from a practical perspective, if you get the call in that you have a child, uh, like in Max's situation, um, it would be pertinent then to have a double or triple airway setup ready, you know, to have your whatever crike kit or your knife and bougie, however you want to do it, to have it just ready there at the bedside. And just having it there at the bedside already is sort of preparing your team for the possibility of going to front of neck access. Yeah, absolutely. To be part of it, you set up and... It's such a unique situation, anaphylaxis. It's rare, but, you know, it'll happen to to one of your listeners for sure. 
one one of our audience will, will be the person that is required to suddenly there's severe bronchospasm, that the food has been in the airway or or in the oral space, and and that's created some local angioedema, and and that all of a sudden there's a difficult airway, and it's okay. Just if you didn't get the tube, that's that's not a failure. That just means it's hard in that in that situation, and it, you you should definitely go for front neck. All right, great. Yeah, that just reminds me that if I haven't already, I'm going to make free open access our cricothyrotomy video from the EM Cases Summit. After this conversation, I'm going to make sure that we do have our cricothyrotomy video for people to refresh their memory of of how to do it. And for those who haven't tried doing it in simulation, I'm sure you'll agree, Dr. McKenzie, that you need those muscle skills all ready to go. And simulation is the best way of doing that to learn your your cricothyrotomy skills. Even if you've never needed to do a cricothyrotomy, this is exactly the kind of situation where it's literally life-saving. Sounds great. So, Dr. McKenzie, you've brilliantly come up with this AMAX4, that's A-M-A-X-4 algorithm. You created this, and it's on your website. It's amax4.org. Is that the website? Yep. Yeah. So people can go to, to there. We'll, we'll have this in the EM Cases show notes as well. But I just want to go through the algorithm. So A stands for adrenaline. M stands for muscle relaxant. A stands for airway. X stands for a series of things, extreme care. And we'll get into those. And the four is four minutes until the hypoxic brain injury, like we were mentioning. Can you just run through for us your algorithm? Yeah, so the starting point is that we need to know what the indication is for this algorithm. And the indication is an asthma or anaphylaxis arrest that is requiring bag valve mask support, which I call respiratory arrest. And respiratory arrest may be accompanied by hypoxic seizures or some you know, some non-purposeful movements, but as soon as uh, people aren't responding to you and you're feeling like you need to help them breathe in this particular condition, then you need to act. And, and so that's the indication for, for, for this algorithm. So if, effectively, it's a cardiac arrest algorithm for asthma and anaphylaxis. And the A or the E is for epinephrine, adrenaline, and it's one microgram per kilo, or if there's cardiac arrest, then it's the full cardiac arrest dose, so 10 micrograms per kilogram. The muscle relaxant is there to give you permission to act now and to make it very clear that you only have one shot. And so the one shot has to be the best shot at laryngoscopy, and so that means giving muscle relaxant. And so it's really there as a cognitive aid to give you permission to go ahead with the airway and to give yourself permission to give the best conditions. Now, you don't need sedation. The sedation comes later. Their awareness is already compromised. So the midazolam or or whatever you like to sedate your patients with um, is on the way in the next five or ten minutes. The A is for airway and it really should just be endotracheal tube because the cuff's required. Once you've given muscle relaxant, most people think that the airway is going to be a tube, so we're trying to get people to focus on this rapid intubation 
And it doesn't matter whether it's oral, orally, or surgically front of neck. It has to that. That's what the A is, and then the X is is really to to add on all. Well, it's about extreme ventilation, extra bronchodilators, extra vasopressors, and so when I say extra bronchodilators, you're just adding it on all your asthma management things that you would normally do. Don't be scared of magnesium. It's not that much of a vasodilator, and they're already getting high dose vasopressor. You know that that the magnesium's okay, even if you read somewhere that it says be careful. You know we're trying to save this person's life, and the four is about the the four minutes. And if you could say Amax four in a different way, it would just be intubate in four minutes and give some adrenaline. It's as simple as that, but it's trying to give you some specific cognitive direction to help in a situation that un- can unfold very rapidly. And and that's the problem with this condition is sometimes, you know, 99% of the time it's fine, but that 1% of the time it, it, it can unfold in minutes. And the two cases that are presented on my website gives a, a timeline, like Max's deterioration and, and another boy, James Sindos, he, his deterioration happens within minutes. In healthcare, both both in healthcare, they both happen in front of health professionals. There was just this inadequate response, and this is designed to give you the tools so that if Anton and I are in the same room, we, we end up working together, then we both know what, what we're about to do. I, I'll take the front of neck, you can take the tube, and someone else is putting in the epi, and, and we're doing it all in four minutes together, and we just have a complete understanding of what's, of what's about to happen. And, and that's kind of where we need to be for these cases. Mm-hmm. That brings up the importance of um, practicing simulations. It seems like the only way you can coordinate, just like you described, is, uh, Ben, if you and I did a simulation together. Yeah. You know, if we did work at the same hospital, you know, the best simulations are the ones where your whole team is actually doing simulations together, nurses, RTs and the physicians and anyone else involved who would be involved in a real case to do the simulations. Uh, so yeah, I just had to put a little plug in there for, for simulation. Totally. Just, just, just on, that, on, on that point, in Australia, we've got into this whole concept of checklists that we, we want to checklist everything before we do an RSI in the emergency department. And that's great, except that in this particular situation, we're relying on all of our simulated practice as well as all of our experience to do it without a checklist because there's no time for a checklist. It, we're relying on our, uh, on our on our practice skills and all those times that we did simulate it together and we did use a checklist so that it becomes second nature when we actually need to do it all of a sudden in four minutes. Dr. McKenzie, I'm going to make you a promise now that I will do my very best to make one of our simulations that we do in the next EM Cases Summit conference on anaphylaxis and asthma, just like Max's case. That would be amazing. That would be very special. And really, our aim as healthcare professionals is to have zero deaths, at least you know, zero injury or zero deaths for people who arrive to us uninjured already, that we can get them safely through what is really a short illness. You know, it only lasts for hours, anaphylaxis. Asthma is a bit longer. But well, you don't need to keep them alive for that long for them to get better. Absolutely. I just want to highlight a few of the things from your great AMAX4 algorithm. One is to highlight that 
despite concerns over removing ventilatory drive with a paralytic, it is imperative that you use a paralytic. So that is the, again, the M, the muscle relaxant, that you're going to go very aggressive with bronchodilators. And in particular, do not be afraid to use magnesium. Even if they're in shock, they're getting so much adrenaline, epinephrine, that any concerns over hypotension caused by magnesium should not be a concern, that the bronchodilatory effects of magnesium are going to outweigh any concern about decreased blood pressure with magnesium, and that many of these patients will develop a pneumothorax just to make sure that you keep that in mind, keep it on your radar, and that you might need to do empiric finger thoracostomies if needed. Yeah, and on that note, the highest rates in the literature are really when there's an arrest and CPR. So if you've had to do CPR on a patient, then it should be super high on your radar. And in fact, Max had bilateral pneumothoraces, and so did James, but they both got CPR. So whereas pneumothorax rate in intubated asthma patients who deteriorate in a controlled way, it's it's low. We're, we're good at doing this small volume, high-pressure long expiratory phase ventilation and pneumothorax rates are low in asthma ventilated patients. But as soon as there's an arrest involved, whether it's because everyone's panicking and giving big volumes or because people aren't allowing adequate expiration or there's CPR involved at the same time, there needs to be on your radar in that situation. Well put, yeah. Dr. McKenzie, how about we end with a call to action? If, if there was going to be a call to action, so to speak, what would be your call to action when it comes to anaphylaxis and severe asthma? Practice. Understand the disease. Aim for zero injuries and death in young people. And understand the AMAX4 algorithm so that you can navigate that and stop another family going through what we're going through. I'd be very grateful. And I'll be standing there beside you in spirit as it unfolds. But yeah, go for it, guys. Make the world a better place. I couldn't have said it better myself. You are an incredible human being, Dr. McKenzie. Thank you so much again for taking the the time and for all the work you've been doing on this topic. Yeah, thank you for having me and... And thank you to all your listeners for, for doing good work and, and being the good healthcare professionals that they are. Take care, everyone.